You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Ed Conard, who is a visiting adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, also former partner at uh, Bain Capital, and the author of a couple books. I guess the one that came out more recently is this one called The Upside of Inequality, How Good Intentions Undermine the Middle Class. And then this one, which came out soon after the financial crisis called Unintended Consequences, why everything you've been told about the economy is wrong. And I think the second book builds on, on the first book. But, you know, there's a lot of topics in here, a lot of material. Maybe we could start off by referencing the, the classic trade-off that I know I encountered when I was in grad school. Arthur Okun wrote this book called Efficiency Versus Equality. And the basic idea was that in the world of welfare economics, there's this, this trade-off, right? And that policymakers have to to decide. And if they push too much towards equality, they're going to impact the productivity of the economy. They're going to impact the, the efficiency and so forth. And, and I think you're kind of jumping into that argument kind of head first and emphasizing that trade-off. But I think you're also kind of saying that you know maybe we're not even on the frontier there, right? Maybe instead of thinking about the trade-offs on the frontier, we're potentially below that frontier and we're not even getting as much productivity out of the economy as we could with the level of inequality that we have. So maybe talk a bit about how you see that, and then we'll dive into the deeper argument about inequality and what it can do for us or not do for us. Well, I could probably talk the whole hour on this topic. It's the right place to start. It's the right place to end. Mm -hmm. Defensive capitalism is a defensive inequality, Mm -hmm. which is why I think my first book, by the way, was more of a defensive capitalism. And then Everybody wanted to argue with me about inequality. So by the time I developed my points of view, I I wrote the second book. And I actually have written a chapter in a textbook which advances these ideas a little Mm -hmm. bit further. I think that in economics, the elasticity of taxes is measured over a very short period of time relative to what's really happening in the economy. So it takes decades to build institutions like Google and Facebook and Intel and Microsoft and Apple and eBay And so if you look at the United States and we can debate why we have these institutions, maybe it was R&D expenditures, maybe it was happenstance, maybe it was the great weather in California, maybe it was low tax rates, who knows why. But we ended up in this positive feedback loop, which is very, very powerful, which is you take the risks to build institutions. Those institutions increase the expected value of risk taking, the likelihood of success, the value of success. And that encourages you to get the training, to do the arduous tasks. Instead of studying art history, you study computer programming. You spend your life, 20 years in a career, really digging deep and solving problems. And eventually you bump into a problem that you say, hey, it's worth taking a risk to solve this problem because I believe that I can do it. And if you're in Europe working for BMW, you don't get that opportunity. You don't have that multiplicative effect. And so I believe We can talk about comparisons between the U.S. and Europe because I think a lot of these comparisons are misunderstood, especially with Scandinavia. But we have a much higher payoff, expected value for risk-taking. And so you see our most talented people working longer hours, getting better training, taking more entrepreneurial risk. It's taken decades 
to get there. And so we measure tax elasticity over a couple of years. It's almost laughable that that's the thing that we're debating about. What we really have to explain is why has the U.S. been so much more successful than Europe's been? And if you look now at the demographics, U.S. versus Europe, we have about 8% of our workers score at the highest levels, levels four and five on OECD tests. We have about 28% of the people that score level one and below. Below means you can't read and write. So we have about one high score for every three low scores. Northern Europe has about twice as much talent and half as much low scores. They have almost four times as many high scores per low score as the United States has. So they can afford to waste their talent. We can't really afford to waste our talent because we have a lot less of it and we have a lot more need from our population in terms of the economic help they need in order to live a happy life in, in our economy. And so what you've discovered is we, we despite having such fewer people, I think that's in part our, the cause of our success because our people have to be a lot more productive and we really have to pair where we allocate our, I call it properly trained talent because we have a lot of talent. A lot of it's not properly trained. And ultimately we have to get the properly trained talent to take risks because if all they do is they're a doctor or a lawyer, they're not gonna increase productivity. They're not gonna produce innovation. And so I uh, contend that that is the constraint to growth in our economy, it's probably the constraint to growth in the world. But despite the differences between our economy and Europe, we are producing five times as many billion dollar startups, unicorns, as the rest of the world is, as Europe is. Apple is worth more than the 30 largest German companies. You know, people talk about how, how wonderful working in Germany is. Our Americans used to earn 20% more, according to the OECD, after you adjust for taxes and government services. and really look at the incomes of people, all things considered, we're now, our middle class, our, our average workers earning 30% more than Germany is. And Germany is the second most successful economy in, in the world. And they're free riding on our innovation. We're producing almost all of it. They're free riding on our healthcare profits. They're free riding on our military expenditures. So we're probably, without us, we're probably even greater than 30% more than they are. And that is because we have been able to substantially increase the productivity of our talented people. And you can see it in the numbers, you can see it in the hours they work. Generally, as people get richer, they work less hours. The most talented Americans have continued to work uh, a, a robust number of hours relative to the rest of the world. We're taking a lot more entrepreneurial risk. We're producing a lot more innovation than they are. And I think what you'd find in this argument between liberals and conservatives is, you know, is it our university system? Is it happenstance? Or is it it's probably partially economies of scale? We have scale that, that helps us relative to Europe. But when we have our workers working in Google and they have their workers working in BMW, the future isn't Google. The future is not in BMW. And so one of the things I think about tax rates, which is related to this, is if you have great ideas the tax rate's gonna matter a lot because you're multiplying by the tax rate. If you don't have good ideas, it doesn't matter. If you have a zero times you know, a high or a low tax number is still gonna be zero. So I don't think you're gonna find the kind of entrepreneurial risk-taking in Europe because they simply don't have access to the ideas that we have here. So if anything, it's gonna matter more here than, than it matters in, in the rest of the world. So. I always think my own self as economists have their nose awfully close to the paper on tax elasticity. We really have to explain this, the outsized success of the United States. And we're pulling away from the rest of the world. And 
by the way, from before 1995, they were catching up because we destroyed them in World War II. It took a long time for them to catch up. When they finally caught up and couldn't really copy us anymore, we've continued to grow. They've continued to stagnate in terms of productivity. And we can measure it in lots of different ways. It's going to get complicated. I know people want to argue in different ways, but you know, I tend to look at it as output per work or output per hour worked as the most effective way. Because when you look at output per capita, you've got retirees and whether women are working full-time or part-time to the extent to which they're in the workforce, it can change how the numbers work. If you just look at per hour worked, which I think is the most effective way to do it, some of the most productive economies in Europe will look similar, much closer to the United States, but the people are working a lot fewer hours. And so if you just say, yeah, I'm going to take off uh, 20% of the hours, I think you're generally going to take off the least productive hours, although I think Someone once said, you know, what 20% of the work creates 80% of the value. Unfortunately, it's the last 20%. But so notwithstanding that, I think in general, what you're going to find is that as most workers are working less, they're going to be more productive per hour work. And we've put 40 million foreign-born adult workers to work. And there are 20 million native-born adult children. That's 60 million uh, people that we've pulled into our workforce. 35 million of those are, are predominantly low-skilled Hispanic immigrants. So the, you know, we are going to create jobs that are consistent with the skill level of our workforce. That's going to also have impacts. We just had higher participation rates and more workers with lower scores than what you find in, in the rest of Europe. If you look at Southern Europe, where our demographics are similar, we're earning about 70% more than Spain and Italy and pulling away even faster than those economies. So, look, you said your first book was written as a defense of capitalism. I think we're all capitalists now. We don't need to defend capitalism. I mean, if we think about, you know, South Korea versus North Korea, I mean, I have a feeling there's not a lot of debate there. I mean, the debate is really around what type of capitalism. And we talked about Arthur Oaken, but I mean, I think it's this, this Thomas Piketty argument is the one that is dominating the, the, the conversation. And, and it's really a difference of, of visions. And I guess they're kind of visions on the margin between maybe a more European approach to capitalism and, and this more American. And I think Piketty is that he sees inequality everywhere, but I, I think he would say that the U.S. exemplifies the worst of this. And and so before we jump into talking about you know policy prescriptions and so forth and the causes of what we're seeing, maybe let's just dig into what we're actually seeing. And maybe some misconceptions that people might have. So I think you're arguing that this view that productivity is stagnant, that's kind of like the Robert Gordon argument, and this argument that inequality is achieving all-time high levels and that investment in capital is stagnating, I think you take on kind of all three of these empirically. So maybe we can say, where does this misconception arise from? Are people misunderstanding the data? Are they kind of distorting the data? Are they asking the wrong questions? Why do you think there's this popular belief that the middle class is being, you know, gutted? And I think that you point about like, you know, we're all waiters waiting on waiters, right? That's kind of where we're headed with the death of manufacturing and, and all that. Where's this misconception coming from? So I'll give you a, a, a hypothesis of where it might be coming from. But be before I go there, I just want to say one thing. In the second book, I do look at middle of the distribution of incomes by workers below the age of 65 between the prime ages of 25 and 55 really say what does that look like and guess what that hasn't changed at all except you see a little blip occurring at the highest level of wages and there's a shift upwards in income and so i think of that as a classically middle class person if we're talking about a retiree or we're talking about a person who's too sick to work or a single mother with children you're talking about policy issues not mm -hmm the economy. 
So I tried to look at the core workforce, 25 to 55, and I also segregated it, whites, blacks, Hispanics, men, women. If you start segmenting that way, you mm -hmm. see even greater shifts upwards. Same type distribution that's always existed. There's been a demographic shift towards workers that have slightly lower median income. So you see a little bit less, but almost inconsequential. So this whole argument that the middle class is being hollowed out, if it is, it's largely because they're not working, they're doing something else. And a lot of people, because we're getting richer, we don't have to work as hard as we used to work before. And we're working a lot less hours, particularly at, at the middle class. But why might people feel this anxiety? I make an argument predominantly in the chapter of the textbook, so I'm not sure if it's in the second book, but I think to a large extent it, it is. If you go back to the 1950s, manufacturing opened up a huge window of opportunities, and our most talented people started designing products that were built by blue, domestic blue-collar workers, and they marketed those products, and they did the accounting, they did the engineering, they did the marketing, they built the factories, they designed the jobs. And there was an enormous increase in productivity that occurred at that time. And at the same time, we sorted the most talented people. We sent them all to college. We restructured our entire workforce towards manufacturing, a much more manufacturing-oriented economy from an agricultural-based economy. There was a green revolution, which eliminated the need to put workers on the farm. So it freed everybody up. The Second World War took everybody off the farm and, and ended up moving them into the city. You taught our workforce a lot more discipline. Oh, by the way, destroyed the world, worldwide competition in, in the process. There was a lot of pent-up innovation from the war that hadn't been commercialized yet. So you know from Robert Gordon's book, you're just off the charts in terms of productivity growth in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. And then it begins to tail off and go back to normal. So there's a time there where I would say our most talented people are working on behalf of the middle class and everybody is growing more prosperous as a result. And then along comes $3 an hour foreign labor, and I'm not gonna just blame it on imports, but it puts enormous pressure on manufacturing. Productivity growth grows faster than the demand for manufactured goods. Manufacturing employment gradually gets hollowed out and people have to shift to other areas. And meanwhile, at the same time, you also see a slowdown in the population growth. You see a big boom when women enter the workforce, and then it slows down after that one-time boom. And you're also going to get a one-time slowdown after you've t identified the talented people and got them all educated. That's a one-time effect on productivity, and then you're going to get back to a steady state level. But luckily, information technology came along right when we needed it most, and it restructured our economy, I think, more than people realized. And, and that is, I think, some combination of it's not only the information technology, the hardware and the software, it's also the data, and it's also using the data to make decisions. Because I, I went to B school in 1982, that was right about the time of personal computers. You see the rise of Bain and, and uh, BCG and, and McKinsey kind of shifts their business from organizational studies to real analytical studies. Mm -hmm. Business becomes a lot more data intensive and analytical. You can extract information from computers with personal computers. Eventually you have Oracle databases and just a lot more information for decision making. And you see our most talented people shift out of engineering, by the way, and into business and loss of the law in other places as well. But they become less science oriented and more business oriented. And, and I believe that it increases the demand for high skill workers, the relative demand for high skill workers. So what you see is high skill workers going to work on behalf of increasing the productivity of high skill workers. 
and you see everybody, you're working at an institution which is largely serving the most talented people. Bain Capital is managing the money of the most talented uh, people. McKinsey, BCG, Goldman Sachs, Microsoft, Apple, eBay, Google, they don't have any blue collar workers. It's all talented workers working together. And you see this a major restructuring of the economy where also the slow population growth puts a lot of pressure on pensions in large legacy companies because they expected to have a lot more growth than they ended up having. And so you see this migration. You also have paid for performance that information technology allows. You see a sort of a three times difference in productivity between people doing the same jobs. So guess what? The most productive guys go, hey, I can make more money on my own and I've got information to measure my productivity. You see a migration out of these legacy large companies into this whole information area in the United States because we opened the borders first, put the pressure on. And the effect of that, though, is so the productivity of that group, if you look at information oriented sectors as a way to measure the information economy, a sort of approximation, that productivity growth has continued on at about 2.7%. Meanwhile, the rest of the economy is at about 0.7%. And if you dig into that piece of the 0.7, the places that are growing the fastest, manufacturing, retail, and wholesale distribution, they're all shedding workers. The places that are growing workers are places that are growing slow, are sectors that are growing slower than the 0.7 average in productivity. So it's likely what's happening is that the blue collar worker, the lesser skilled worker, is being pushed into a service oriented job. There's a lot more entropy losses, they're a lot harder to manage. You don't have machinery and physical equipment mm -hmm. to structure the job. It takes supervision. Meanwhile, your supervisors are all going off to work in information technology, leaving these guys behind it to fend for themselves. They may very well be in jobs that have zero productivity growth. And the only thing that's driving up their wages is the productivity growth of the most talented people. So it's not surprising that these guys over here say, well, what happened? You told me I'm a 70th percentile guy. If I go to college, it's going to have this big effect like it did 30, 40 years ago. But it turns out I'm not really earning any more money than my father earned or my mother earned who was also a 70th percentile or a 60th percentile person. My productivity growth slowed down. What, like, I don't have the kind of supervision and structure in my job that's going to make me successful. And I'm getting in a job where I'm serving the most talented people. I'm, I'm working for them indirectly as opposed to directly. And I don't really, I don't like any of these dynamics. And so, you know, it's not surprise those guys go get Donald Trump bare knuckle bully to go fight on their behalf. And they say, geez, what I don't want, for example, is I don't want trade with low wage economies because that puts pressure on my wages. I don't want low skilled immigration because that puts pressure on my wages. I want to make sure that you're, if you're going to tax the rich guys and slow down growth, I want it spent on my social security and Medicare because that's the only thing I got going for me at this point. I'm late in my career. I'm not so psyched about you spending it on Poor people, where we can go back to that and say, you know, we're all spending a lot more money, I think, than most people realize. And so I think there's this, this it's a very logical reaction to what I think is really going on in macro perspective. Let's dig into the productivity numbers, because, I mean, I, I'm in that world where data science and IT and everything. And ever since the 80s, we've seen this rapid increase in, in computing speeds and amount of data storage and so forth. And we're walking around with a 
you know, $200 million supercomputer in our, in our pocket that we can do TikTok with and so forth. And just look at manufacturing. I mean, we, we're manufacturing more than we ever have in our history with a tiny fraction of the, of the workers, right? S similar to kind of what happened in, with agriculture. And so why isn't this showing up in, in the productivity statistics? Is there a problem with the statistics, the way we're thinking about it? You mentioned that the vast majority of the benefits that are generated by these technological advances go to the consumers and only a tiny fraction is captured by the people that are in the business of, of producing it, which should presumably also include the employees of those organizations. So is there something wrong with the way we're, we're thinking about productivity, the way we're measuring it? You also talk a bit about investment and how we're not measuring investment. The way in which we do the accounting around investment versus consumption is built on this kind of manufacturing approach. What are we missing in the data? So there's a lot of complications. <laughs> I mean, this is deep water, this question. I could probably go out for three or four hours of this. I don't even know if I can remember everything that I... You know, I probably forgot more than I, I remember on this. First is I'd say this, we expect too fast growth. We're probably, we're doing pretty well here. You know, I don't know about what it looks like outside your door, but I'm looking outside my window and it's a pretty wonderful world out there for the most part. You know, when you're in the 1950s and a lot of people don't have telephones and indoor plumbing and no one's flying around on planes, maybe it's a whole lot easier to get productivity growth than when everybody's flying around on a plane and has a supercomputer in their pocket and, and all the things that they have it's going to get harder and harder and harder to increase productivity growth, I believe, at the same rate. I also think that, that manufacturing was a one-time event. You see that in Robert Gordon's numbers. So anybody who wants to go back to the 1950s and make a comparison, I think it's doing that for political reasons. Not, it's not a serious comparison is what I would say. But, you know, maybe quantum computing and artificial intelligence do something crazy again. I don't know. Anything's possible, I suppose. But you certainly look at the numbers and say that's a one-time event, and it probably has two other factors in it. One is you just had enormous R&D expenditure on the war. It wasn't commercialized. You really didn't get things commercialized in the 30s and the Depression, so you probably did have a buildup that gets released after the Second World War that probably accelerates. And you do have something very powerful, which is we did. No, most people didn't finish high school in 1930. By the time you get to 1955, which my parents are going to college, they're the first people in their families, in their generations that have ever gone to college. My dad was an engineer. He's, he's studying calculus. His, his father was working on the, the assembly line. So he probably had a guy who could do calculus, but he was riveting cars. And the difference in productivity was going to be enormous. And so I think you went through three phases of that, I believe. The first phase is my father. The second phase is me. And, you know, I went to the University of Michigan. I became an engineer. I went to work for a Ford Motor Company. I said, geez, I really ought to move to the coast and I really ought to go get a business degree. And I really shouldn't be working at Bain. I remember I, I, they were going to lay me off at Ford and I went to a job fair and the guy looked at my resume and he goes, what are you doing here? Like he was a consulting firm. It was Booz Allen and Hamilton. He's like, you, you got to get out of here. You got to, this is crazy. So I think you had this huge migration to the coast and a complete restructuring of the economy. And, and along the way, through these generations of sortative mating, the most talented people, they're all in the coast. They're all meeting each other. All of their kids are even more capable. Uh, most of us, I think, would say we couldn't even get into the schools we got into because it's grown so much more competitive to get into those schools. 
I mean, that is a big impact on productivity. I also believe, I don't think it's the major issue, but there's a lot more investment than people realize. There's a lot of intangible investment. There's a lot more in software and data. And you just look at everything that's on the internet, most of it being created for free, some of it by companies, but a lot not. I mean, I don't know how any of that stuff's being counted. So I do think if you really look at the serious guys who've tried to do that accounting, the intangibles, the Carol Carrados of the world and such, I think, you know, that is having an impact. I don't think that's the biggest thing. But also, I think just look at science. You've you got to build the CERN reactor now to, to learn something about physics. And then you build it and you barely learn anything about physics. Yep, there's a Higgs bassoon, but, or, you know, what else have we learned? It's, it's, it's hard to push the science forward at this point. And I think that's indicative of all innovation. It's much more complex. It's much more technical today than it was in the 1950s. And the standards are higher. I would add one more thing that I think as well, which is, I say this in the second book, you have an idea, you can blow it out to the world now. And it's probably a non-physical idea. So you don't even need capital and blue collar workers. You don't have to create Ford Motor Company with factories and engineers and dealerships and you know, you're Google with a good idea. It can blow out to the whole world. So I think you can work on projects that have incrementally smaller returns because you're multiplying them times a much bigger market and a much lower cost to commercialize them. And so I guess it's not surprising to me that people might not be working on as big of ideas, but for me, it's all kind of survival of the fittest, uh, random mutation survival of the fittest. You're just you're working on whatever you think you can find that's going to make sense. You go work on it. And I think you'd find in the United States an awful lot of that is, is occurring. Now, there are ideas we're not picking up that would have accelerated our productivity. And I'd say there's, you know, there's another factor as well, probably two other factors if I keep thinking about it. You know, government, there's a lot more regulation. There's a lot more taxation and redistribution than it was in the 40s and 50s probably makes the world better uh, in many ways, but doesn't get picked up in the productivity numbers. It's not, you know, if you put in environmental controls, it makes everybody's life better, but I don't think we're picking that up in the productivity numbers, but it's certainly going to slow down the numbers that we're measuring. And the same thing with taxes and redistribution and stuff and things like that. So there's probably an element of that. And there's also an element of I think if you're born in a family without a father, you're not going to be as productive. And I think as respect for authority declines because we've inundated everybody with television where, you know, it's the lone individual and very little respect for authority and the macho man and murder all day on TV. Is that going to affect our productivity? Probably is. I but I think, you know, that's more the low end than the high end. Well, so, okay, so let's dig into this. Let's agree that the middle class is not being hollowed out. We're not seeing stagnation of, of wages and, and income on the average. The median individual is seeing improvement and so forth. But it, it's kind of hard to dispute the idea that we're seeing a lot more inequality, right? When we see people like Jeff Bezos and Sergey and Larry and the folks yeah. you mentioned, but not just them, of course. I mean, yeah. there's, there's a whole you know, tranche of the super wealthy, whether it's the, yeah. the 0.1% or, or the 1%. And so we're definitely seeing a much steeper curve there. And a lot of people are d distressed by this. I guess th the question is, is this the price that we pay? Is this something that is absolutely sort of essential to the creation of wealth? Or as some people would argue, hey, these people are going to do it anyway. And if you tax them at rates like from the 1970s. I remember my dad would, you know, complain about the 70% tax 
rate that he actually it's not that much higher than what you pay now he didn't actually pay it but yeah keep going yeah right, right, yeah i know you had the company car and all the company my, my dad had like worked at a clothing company so yeah. he had about a thousand suits which <laughs> you know i don't think he needed a thousand suits but you know they were free so he, he had a, a lot of suits still your part of your argument is that if you kill that you're going to kill the the golden goose because that's what generates the the incentives to take these really really a big, big risks. But aren't we also kind of getting to the point where it's not that risky? I mean, if you are someone who is very, very well educated, if you are someone that has a lot of skills, yes, you might not become Sergey or Larry, but you don't really have to worry about falling into poverty, right? You don't have yes. to worry about working as a waiter or, or a house cleaner, right? Once mm -hmm. you have that Ivy League degree and so forth. So are we at the point where if you were to push for even more redistribution than what we have right now, that it would necessarily on the margin impact our, our capacity to grow and be, become more productive? So I think the answer to that is nobody knows. That's why there's a debate. I don't think the economists know that either. I, I gave you my argument for why I think the long run tax elasticity is much higher than people think it is, and that they're measuring the long, wrong elasticity at, at, in the short run. I don't think anything changes in the short run. You know, I think one of the things we I learned in bank consulting, which we carried over to bank capital, is you can always create value in the short run by destroying it in the long run. Mm -hmm. You lose market share at jack up prices, increase margins, lose market share. You know, it happens gradually over time. You look like a genius in the short run, but problem in bank capital is you go to sell the company, nobody's going to put a high multiple on it because they see what's going on in the long run. The companies with high multiples are the Googles and Facebooks of the world where people look at the long run and say, wow, it's really, it's getting better and better, not worse and worse. So I think you can always mortgage the future for the present. How much of an impact will it have? I don't know. I think, I do believe in the United States, we have about half as much talent as Europe. What you find is we're earning about twice as much at the high end. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, if you array test scores, for example, against incomes, You'd find in the middle of the United States with similar scores in the median, 50th percentile person is earning 20, 25% more than the European is for a comparable score. But when you get up to the high scores, we're earning way more than they are. And I'm talking pre-tax in the marketplace. You know, I'm using like Lisbon income study and there's a, another study in that you see is people earn more, they earn a lot more in the United States. Mm -hmm. But there's some other, I'm using the OEC database where somebody linked their test scores in that database to administrative data on wages and how much people were earning. You see a big difference in that database as well, which is probably more accurate. But I think when you have half as much talent and, oh, by the way, you're the innovation machine, what are you gonna see? You're gonna see a lot more money being made at the high end. And I think it's gonna cascade because there's opportunity costs. You're going to have to pay more for a doctor. You're going to have to pay more for a lawyer. You're going to have to pay more for a professor because the alternatives are go to work for Google, go to work for Facebook, go to work for Intel or McKinsey or Goldman Sachs or, or, or Bain Capital. So I do think that's going to drag up the wages of people that have a lot of talent at the top. I do believe that the success of that group, particularly in the United States where it's small, is the key to the middle class earning 20 to 30% more than their comparable test score person in Europe. And if you look at the demographics, as I said before, in the United States, it looks a lot like Italy and Spain, and there our middle is earning like 70% more. Okay, so, you know, big differences. I believe it matters. I believe it matters in the long run. 
I believe in the short run, you can appear to have your cake and eat it too, which is you can ramp up the taxes, you can redistribute the income. At the margin, I believe if you lower the expected value for risk-taking, you're going to get less risk-taking. You're going to get less people who say, instead of studying economics, which I find enjoyable, or art history, which somebody else might find enjoyable, I'm going to study computer programming, I'm going to study mathematics, I'm going to take a tougher job as an accountant, as opposed to, say, a communications person, which, you know, it's going to suffer through the tedious, arduous work that truly adds value to customers. And I think more people are doing that in the United States than anywhere else in the world. And gradually, you're going to build these institutions, which is going to make everybody richer at all levels. Now, when you get down to the bottom, I think you have two things going on. One is you know, we've pulled 35 million low-skilled Hispanic adults into the workforce. If they can't do computer programming, then we better create a job that they can do for them. And then, you know, we can complain. I, I saw something the other day in the Wall Street Journal that showed you the percentage of low-wage workers and compared it by country. Well, 28% of Americans score level one or below. Guess what? It's like 28% of Americans have low-wage jobs. And, you know, they bemoan the fact that, oh, well, they have a lot of low-wage jobs in America. Yeah, thank God. Okay, because if you have 28% or level one or below, you better create a good job for those people too. But it's going to look different than the kind of jobs we're talking about at the high end, which are way better than the jobs in Europe. I I was reading a New York Times article a long time ago, guys in boiler plant complaining in America how bad his workforce was relative to the German boiler plant. And, you know, the New York Times is thinking that it's dissing the American workforce. You're going, yeah, because the guy who works in a German boiler plant ain't working in a boiler plant in the United States. That guy's like, like fixing your computer or something. But he's not working in a boiler plant in the United States because that is too low of a wage job, too dirty of a job, too dangerous of a job. Our workers have moved out of those jobs. That's why Apple's worth more than the 30 largest German companies. Why do you want to be in manufacturing? There's no future in that. There's $3 an hour labor in China. And really smart guys, PhDs, who are willing to supervise them, engineer the products, market the products, do the accounting, all the stuff that goes with that. So a couple questions there. I mean, first of all, are we overly focused on tax policy? I mean, it can't solely be attributable to differential tax policy, in part because the the, the difference in the marginal rates isn't actually that big. I mean, my sister just moved to Europe and they're bemoaning their American citizenship because it's like the taxes are higher here. So there are all sorts of other factors that contribute to- She's probably not factoring in the 25% VAT tax, but keep going. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But that's, again, that's on consumption. And you point out in the book that the inequality in wealth is much larger than the inequality in income, which is much larger than the inequality in, in, in consumption. And so when folks become very wealthy, they save an enormous chunk of their income, right? And that's that's why they have so much wealth, because it's all mm-hmm. great savings. So Yeah, they innovate and create something that they didn't save their way there. Jeff Bezos didn't save his money. Yeah. He created it, but go on. Right. So if so much of this this wealth is being saved, I think part of your argument is that anything that would reduce that kind of saving would potentially reduce the overall productivity of, of the economy. But Yeah, my, a little different, my argument would be keep going. Yeah, I want to hear more about that because I think the other part of your argument is that capital is almost free nowadays, right? It's actually in my, my class, my students gave me a, a mug at the end of class and it has written on it, capital schmapital. Because I kept saying that in class. I was like, hey, yeah. you know, you can't say that you have a competitive advantage because you have access to capital, right? Because, yeah, you know. Talentism, it's not capitalism. It's talentism. Right? Yeah. Yes. 
Keep going, yes. Yeah, so, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about both of those things. First of all, why capital is no longer constraint on growth, that capital is kind of available, but that there's risk-averse capital and risk-seeking capital. And the, the kind of capital that's really driving innovation is this kind of risk-seeking or, or, or equity capital. Yep, risk underwriting, yes, risk-bearing. So first thing I'd say is properly trained talent is the binding constraint to growth, at least in America. Tax policy doesn't matter as much as we ought to go out and get all the high-skilled immigrants in the world and bring them here because it just about dulls their productivity when they land on the ground. And then if they go to work in a tech industry, it probably quadruples their productivity from where they were, sitting in a internet cafe in Greece thinking about the world. To find the constraint to growth, there isn't enough that we could do in tax policy to have a big enough effect. You know, we aren't going to bang into a problem in the future of, are we really going to be able to compete with the Chinese or not? Have we grown fast enough to cover all the debt so that our children are significantly better off in the future than they are today? The way to solve that problem is go out and recruit all the world's talent to the United States. So it's talentism, it's not capitalism. The second thing I would say is I do think you have to distinguish between what I'm going to call risk-averse savings and risk-bearing or risk-underwriting savings, equity versus debt. So we know that guys like China and Germany, and previously Japan, but even still Japan and Korea, are saving way more money than they're investing back in their manufacturing-oriented economies. The demand for manufactured goods just isn't growing that fast. And so the only way that they can keep everything in equilibrium is to run big surplus exports. And in order to run big surplus exports, they've got to send money out to the savings out to the rest of the world to equilibrate the flows. They've got to export capital. They can export risk under risk bearing capital. And wisely, from their perspective, they go, why would I do that? I'm going to put the savings that don't want to take any risk because that's the savings that don't grow the economy. And we facilitate that by running big fiscal deficits, federal deficits, guaranteeing all that money with the federal debt. And they say, geez, I have a Keynesian paradox of thrift problem, which is I have too much savings relative to consumption, relative to investment. I can't get the, like, my, my workers to consume. So I just have the savings piling up. Oh, by the way, there's no silos to store the production. So you just shut down the production and we're allowing them to export their savings to us through trade surpluses. And it solves their Keynesian paradox of thrift. And we have done a phenomenal job of solving the rest of the world's paradox and thrift. So in addition to guys like Jeff Bezos creating an enormous amount of wealth, but keep in mind, that's the net present value of future cash flows. Oh, by the way, there is no time travel. We can't really bring Jeff Bezos's wealth back from the future and consume it or invest it today. All we can do is consume or invest our consumption today. And the interest rates drops to zero, and then you discount his future cash flows by zero. And it looks like he's got an enormous increase in wealth. Unless he's willing to borrow against that wealth and use it as collateral, which I think you're going to find that, that he says, like, why would I do that? I got, I got more wealth than I'm ever going to spend. Why would I borrow against it and make more investments? Oh, by the way, the binding constraint is finding good investment opportunities. And that's some function of exogenously given what opportunities are we finding? Because I'm sure they're searching for everything, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. They're searching for everything they can possibly find. And if they think the expected value is positive, they're certainly making the investment. But that's also a function of the amount of properly trained talent that you have. And that properly trained talent has two effects. One is it goes out and finds the ideas because without the talent, you don't find the ideas. 
But the second thing it does is it, it reduces the risk of implementing those ideas. So it has this risk-reducing function. And you're always trying to go, hey, if it has a positive expected value, plus the opportunity cost the capital, I think you're going to find people queuing up to try to make those investments. There is a, a, an aspect of this, which is if you take risk and you don't get excess return, well, why don't you just stick the money in the stock market? So we can complain all we want about the excess returns that technologies creating for the investors on the one hand. On the other hand, we're probably darn lucky that there are excess returns, or at least that people believe that if they make future investments, there's going to be excess returns because they wouldn't be innovating if it wasn't for excess returns. If everybody's just earning the cost of capital, I wait for you to innovate, then I just take your idea and use it. And so the only reason why I, I take the risk to innovate at all is because I think I'm going to get some first to market advantage or something like that, some economy of scale that's going to give me the excess returns that justify the risk that I took. But leaving that aside, I'm just looking for stuff with positive expected value. And I have to do two things to get it. One is I have to find it. And two is I got to manage it. And two is very difficult to do. I walk around all the time and think, ah, oh, somebody had to change that. Somebody had to fix that. Oh, here's a restaurant. They should put it right on this corner. I go, I'm not spending my time doing that because I got other things to do. And I go, I can't hire somebody. You guys, you work at Berkeley. You can hire anybody you want at Berkeley. You got the smartest people in the world at Berkeley. Come work for you know, a little three-man shop, Ed Conard. See if you can persuade a guy like you to come work for me. It can't happen. Oh, by the way, I try to uh, fix my computer. You guys have some gigantic IT department with the most capable guys. I get some guy who goes, well, if I can't work for you and I can't work for IBM and I can't work for boom, 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 then I guess I'll go fix Ed Conard's computer. So the lack of talent is a real constraint to trying to get things done, not only find the ideas, but reduce the risk. And so I think that's a very important piece of it. I think this whole risk-averse savings gives the impression that capital is really cheap. I also think what part that's hard to understand is I know how much money I have and I know how much risk I'm willing to take. And, hey, I'm not putting all my money at risk. So I have to have a lot of risk. Before I start looking for cures for cancer, which 99 out of 100 of them are going to fail. Oh, by the way, I need a big due diligence effort because every guy who walks in my door has the next cure for cancer. And boy, you can prove it. 100 ways till Sunday. And I don't have these people working for me, but I have to invest in somebody that does have people. I have to give my money to people who are going to charge me the carry and the fees to have the due diligence team to actually sort the pile and figure out which ones are actually really worth doing. But even if I do all that, which lowers my returns, just a different form of taxation, you know, I, it affects the way I think about this stuff when I have to pay carry and fees and all this stuff to, to, to be in venture capital. And oh, by the way, I got to worry that Andreessen Horowitz is going to come in and scarf up. You have to have a lot of risk averse savings mm -hmm. before you start putting your equity into those pools. Now, I still think we look at those pools and there seems to be a surplus of capital in those pools, but a surplus is also a shortage. Because I think you'd find the whole world wants to invest in American mm -hmm. innovation, and we don't have enough innovators to put all their money to work. Well, yeah, so that's, that's why I wanted, maybe you could dig into this, because in both the books, you talk about the potential harmful effects of these capital inflows, right? And these sort of risk-averse capital inflows. And if it course, was coming in as equity, as risk-bearing stuff, it'd be great, but... Yeah, but doesn't it just free up the domestic capital for risk-seeking innovation? I mean, isn't it just sort of making it easier for us to appropriate all of the upside for ourselves. I mean, same thing with the influx of low-skilled labor. Doesn't the influx of low-skilled labor just 
allow us to kind of turbocharge or leverage. I mean, look, if I, if I couldn't rely on somebody to work in my yard or clean my house, every hour that I have somebody cleaning my house is an hour that I can spend, you know, enhancing my more lucrative skills, right? I mean, this, mm -hmm. this, in fact, and, and I would argue, by the way, there's a super, super strong demand for low-skilled people. I mean, my housekeeper and my gardener here are, are making more than computer scientists in Ohio, right? Yeah. So, I mean- we need that. But you, you argue that there's potential, you know, harmful effect. Could you dig into that? Because uh, I think most economists would probably find this debatable, right? Most economists are orthodox free trade people. Most economists are orthodox immigration people. They, they want the free flow of capital and, and labor. And I think you're maybe a little bit more cautious about this. I'll start with capital. On the margin, I think what you're describing is true. To the extent money's flowing in from offshore, it's freeing up our money to go invest in everything we possibly can invest in. I contend to you that we're banging into a talent constraint more than a capital constraint on that end. But at the same time, I would say, yeah, and it also did two other things that we ought to keep in mind. One is it flooded our banking system with money prior to 2007. Banking is an inherently unstable, yep. borrow short, lend long uh, function. It's critical to avoiding a paradox of thrift because you, you don't want savings sitting around. That's a bad thing. You got to get the savings recycled back into consumption or investment. If you don't have low risk investments for that risk averse capital, you're going to have a slowdown in the economy. You're basically saying that the U.S. global financial crisis was just a, a bigger version of, say, what happened in Malaysia in 1998, yeah, yes. right? It's just oh, a, without a doubt, without yeah. a doubt. Now, I wrote in my first book, and I think we did a really dumb thing, which is as the economy gets more prosperous, housing captures a lot of the value. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not so bad if, to let a homeowner extract his equity out of his house and consume it. And if the foreign investor wants to finance that transaction, let's just take their money and finance that transaction. And Yes, we want the homeowner to have some skin in the game, but as long as there's a subordinated tranche that's absorbing 20% mm -hmm. of the losses so that we're not wiping out our banking system, and people have a real misnomer about what happened in the financial crisis, there were not heavy defaults on loans. In the end of the day, there was a lot of mark-to-market -market on AAA tranches, but the losses on AAA tranches, as far as I've seen, are pretty small, not very large, because... What you want bankers and banks to be doing is to making loans that don't default, that pay back. What you don't want bankers doing is trying to prevent a run on the banks. Because the way to prevent a run on the banks, the way to protect against a run on the bank, just hold a lot of money. But then you're, you're creating the very problem you're trying to solve, which is you try to hold a bunch of money, then slow down the economy. So you don't want the money sitting in the banks. You want it out there. Now, if we, if we have risky, venture types of investments and the companies like the Ford Motor Companies are generating enough cash flow to, to fund their investments, which are perhaps a little bit lower risk because they're a little less innovation technology oriented. Then where is the money come China and Germany and Korea and Japan going to flow? Well, one, it was flowing into housing. Mm -hmm. you know, and bankers were getting paid a lot of money because they were solving a major macroeconomic problem. They didn't know they were solving it. But they were creating syndications, international syndications to get the money, and they were tranching to, to put in subordinated tranches to bear the risk. They were doing a lot of stuff to solve that problem. And then we shut them all down. I said in the first book, look, you shut them down. It's take a long time to figure out what to do with that money. And we're going to see slow growth for a long time until we find an alternative. Well, you could argue that the reason why they were 
putting it in housing is because there, were, there weren't enough government bonds for them to put it into, right? So we, we had to create all this AAA stuff. Yeah. And the alternative is run big fiscal deficits and suck down the money that way. Yeah. Now, I don't know, but I look at my children and I go, a dollar spent today is a dollar spent. It doesn't matter whether you tax or you get the net present value of interest payments for the rest of the time. It's just a question of who's actually going to pay. I believe that my kid is going to pay, your kid and everybody's kid is going to pay the net present value of interest payments in the form of less government or higher taxes and slower innovation and growth. Frankly, I don't even think it's fair that we can foist it on my kid without even my kid getting a vote or a say in the matter just because it happens to be good for me. So I think one of the bad effects of this is that you lose fiscal discipline because you don't need to tax investors to actually do an expenditure. And so you keep talking about how you're going to tax the rich, but you never really tax the rich. You just keep borrowing and borrowing the money. So you keep putting it on the guys that don't vote, which is the children, the future generation. It's just the net present value cash flows. You don't have to fight for taxes. I tell this all the time. Democrats, you, you spend the money. That's how you tax. You don't tax by taxing. You tax by spending. Once the dollar is spent, the dollar is taxed one way or another. It doesn't matter. So I don't know where we want the money flowing into big fiscal deficits or we want the money flowing into real estate. Personally, I would pick real estate. And I think if it's done prudently and thoughtfully, it's actually good for our middle class because real estate captures a lot of the value that's being created in the economy. It's redistributing it to the, to the homeowners, the middle class, and we should be letting them extract their equity out and we could be keeping the system in equilibrium. But we have zero interest rates. You know, I think, why do we want to solve the whole world's Keynesian paradox and thrift? I don't know why we're agreeing to do it. Oh, by the way, you know, balanced trade is a wonderful thing, okay? It's sort of a wonderful thing in, in the following way. I'll talk about labor now, okay? When trade is balanced, presumably we buy something from them, they buy something from us. There's no change in employment there, okay? Now, it's true. What we're selling to the world is Apple operating systems produced by our most talented people, and what we're buying from the world is three-dollar-an-hour labor. So it's probably the case that our low-skilled guys are getting... A downward pressure on their wages and our high-skilled guys are getting upward pressure on their wages. So from a low-skilled guy, I might not like to trade so much, but from a macro perspective, if you don't dig too deep under the surface, everything's in equilibrium, right? But when you run trade deficits, now you are shipping a job overseas because you're, you're hiring more people overseas than you're in the United States. You have to borrow that money back and you have to invest it in a way or consume it in a way that recreates the job that you lost the trade deficit which is different than trade. And so we should not talk about trade deficits. That's not trade. That's solving the world's Keynesian paradox of this. That's flow of capital. Talk about balanced trade everywhere. That's a wonderful thing. Notwithstanding the point I, I, I made earlier about high skill versus low skill. It's more wonderful for us high skill guys than it is for the mm -hmm. low skill guys who are getting inundated with $3 an hour, $3 an hour. So so I think what you're saying is that if, if we were running a trade deficit because the rate of return on capital was higher here than elsewhere. You could you know, generate a higher return on your, your investment here. That makes perfect sense, right? Yes. You want capital inflows, but you're saying that the capital inflows are not happening for that result precisely because the folks who are injecting the capital are perfectly content to get back like more or less 0% you know, rate of return. They're not bringing over equity to invest in creating new businesses and creating new jobs and funding innovation that's going to cure cancer. That's not what they're shipping to us. They are shipping government guaranteed, you know, super risk averse savings that demands government guaranteed debt. That is not creating jobs. 
I mean, it can. We can just run big deficits and redistribute that money out to people and voice the cost onto our children. But that's not creating jobs and growth. That's being created by talented people in the United States and the payoffs for risk-taking, the expected values they see and the reasons why they're, they're bothering to take risks in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the second thing, by the way, that happens in low-skilled immigrants the same thing's happening, which is, hey, we love the idea that we can get our grass cut and our laundry done. We can get back to doing the most productive work. And it's true that immigration creates its own demand. Its supply creates its own demand, if you will. But at what marginal product of labor is the question? So if we're taking in so many low-skilled immigrants that it's waiters waiting on waiters, that what's happening in my yard, which is, hey, cut the grass. I don't have time to supervise you. Your productivity might be low. Okay. Yeah, you're getting a high wage here because you know there's there's a shortage of low-skilled labor, if you will, that's driving up the wage. But it isn't, by the way, you know, the wage looks high in San Francisco, but when you adjust for after-rent wages, I think you might be surprised that your after-rent wages on the low-skilled worker are kind of low, not kind of high. And then what you find is that a lot of middle-class Americans, native-born middle-class Americans, particularly the 40th percentile guys, moving out. Because when he looks at his after-rent wages, it's not so good. He goes, I, I can do a better, I can get a better wage in Texas. I can get a better wage in Ohio. Maybe I can't get a better wage in Kansas if I'm not a farmer, but I think you're going to see outward migration from Boston, from New York, Seattle, San Francisco in that middle supervisory tier. But again, I think who are the beneficiaries of low skill wages? We are. Who's paying the cost? The low-skilled worker. Aren't the low-skilled immigrant workers, aren't they just the parents of high-skilled future workers, right? That's not what the data says. You wish it was true. Now, Mr. Roz Chetty does a whole lot of work on this, and he dresses it up in a very interesting way. But when you really dig through his data and look at it, I think you find that if you sort by statistically significant demographics like race, for example, that the children of poor immigrants end up earning exactly what the native-born workers in their statistically significant demographic earn. So there's not the kind of upward mobility that you'd like to believe there's going to be. You look at twins separated at birth raised by non-biological parents, it's 50 to 80 percent genetic, and the remainder, let's just use the middle of the range, 65 of the remaining 35, it's one half shared environment and one half randomness on shared environment. You got hit by a car. We can't really measure it. So really our one sixth shared environment is going to solve this problem. If you look at the data, it doesn't really do what you wish it was doing. And you look at how much money we've spent on education and the equilibration of spending and everything that we've done. We haven't seen increases in test scores. We haven't seen closing of the gaps. You know, yes, you neglect people, you neglect school districts. That's going to have an impact. But with civil rights legislation, and then again, under Bush's uh, No Child Left Behind, where he said, let's measure the test scores. And oh, by the way, you're stand out as below where you would be for any statistically significant thing. Go fix your district over there that you're neglecting. That had an impact. To go around and say, we're going to fix the neglected districts, they do have an impact. But once you bring them all up, people don't have technology to get us from there to the next level. You know, Bill Gates put his own money, hundreds of millions of dollars in this. He didn't believe the data. He's come back. He said it's harder to cure malaria than it is to increase test scores. And he said the problem in America is not unmotivated teachers. It's unmotivated students. 
And I believe what you're going to find is we think about it differently because if you can benefit from education, boy, you value education. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're struggling to read and write, if you're not really going to use math, if people don't really care what you have to say, so you don't need to write that well, it doesn't have as much value as we think it has. And we get this myth that all you need to do is get to college and voila, everything's going to be fine. And it turns out it's debatable how much value college is adding over and above the signaling, the selectivity that there was just a study out the other day where they looked at everybody in Texas colleges and looked back to their test scores and to what they earned after and which school, Texas public school they went to, UT Austin being the top down to the bottom in Texas. Selectivity had almost no effect on the outcome. It was almost entirely driven by your pre-college credentials. So if the bottleneck then is high-skilled workers and talent, and the universities don't seem to be, I mean, it's it, the policy change that you would need might not be The universities really add a lot of value. If yeah. you take a talented person and you give them a technical education, you teach somebody how to be an engineer, they're going to be way more valuable than if you teach them art history. So is it about then making changes to our educational system? You mentioned in the book that these companies are doing so much to create high-skilled employees, right? And that most of the investment that's taking place is not in the form of physical plant, property plant equipment and so forth, but in the form of human capital creation. Mm -hmm. Is the secret then to just make sure that companies continue to benefit from that training? Or is it to make sure that individuals are incentivized to acquire those skills by making sure that they'll be rewarded for that investment with appropriate income? Well, I think all of the above, right? Look, I don't think we can depend on companies to train people because they quit and go work somewhere right. else and the company doesn't capture uh -huh. the value. So they, they, uh -huh. the economic incentive is not yeah. quite aligned there. Nevertheless, I think you're going to find the Google's, Facebook's of the world, they're pouring money into trading because they have to. They can't generate the product if they don't have the technical. I think you mentioned there was a debate about the spillovers from corporate innovation. And I think the debate is really, is it 5x or is it 20x, the ratio of external benefit to, to internal benefit? And I think that would probably be similar when it comes to whatever training and skill development they do internally, the, the benefit will probably spill over to the employees themselves yeah. after they leave and, and to future employers, et cetera, right? But predominantly at the high end. Mm -hmm. So I believe that if you create a shortage at the low end, it's going to redistribute money. It is taxation, it is redistribution, it is going to redistribute, okay, number one. It's going to cost you more to have your house cleaned and your hedges, you know, your grass cut. So more people are going to do it at the margin and that's going to slow down growth. But on the other hand, you, you're going to go, should I really just let that employee go? Uh, it's bad times. Am I just going to lay off the least capable guy and hire back the, you know, wait, he's the first guy fired and the last guy hired. You're going to take that employee who's less than perfect and nurture that employee because you're not getting another employee if you don't you make that employee work. I think you'd find that companies were investing more at the low end in training and retention and having run warehouses with 15, 20 dollars an hour. I think you'd be shocked at how much turnover is down there, how much engineering is required to get that worker to be as productive as it could be. Often three months, four, five, six months of tenure. You know, I always kid, if you're willing to stay around for a year, we'll make you the foreman. There's a lot more turnover at the bottom than people realize. So I think what you find right now is that companies go, 
okay, I'll just suffer through the turnover. I'm not going to really invest a lot of money in training. Largely what I'm investing in, which is useful for the workers, is technology like cash registers that will add and stuff or in picking in warehouses, lights that shine on things and barcodes and cameras mm-hmm. and things like that to really reduce the error rate for an employee who otherwise would have a much higher error rate. I think those things are all helping, but I think the more you're paying and the more shortage there is, the more you're going to be working to retain what you have. And I believe right now what you have on the margin is you do have low-skilled waiters waiting on low-skilled waiters, driving down the marginal product of labor, the wages of labor, and you go 12 bucks an hour, 15 bucks an hour, and super high turnover. What you really do is you say, I ought to be working at IBM. I ought to be working at Microsoft. Is what you really do, by the way. I shouldn't be taking the entrepreneurial risk to try to create the next McDonald's. And then all we do is denigrate the Walmarts of the world and the McDonald's of the world who are killing themselves with engineering to figure out how to make a low-skilled worker productive enough so that you want to buy his labor at $8 an hour or $12 an hour or $15 an hour. And I don't think you'd find a single company out there, McDonald's, they'd love to be able to hire a $15 an hour worker if they could make those economics work. They get less turnover. They need less supervision. They go, yeah, that's, that guy's not available to me and nobody will buy that hamburger. I got to figure out how to make this work with the $8-hour-an-hour worker. We pretend that that's the same worker, but having owned businesses and been down there, those big differences in who it is you're hiring and what you need to do to make it successful. And you need a lot of talented people to work to figure out how to make it work. Meanwhile, you know, you have the government working against you because they keep raising the minimum wage. If you go, I got to get over the 12-hour, I got to get over the 15-hour. And then you got the whole left telling you that you're a bad person because you tried to hire an eight-hour-an-hour guy. And you go, okay, I don't want to be in a business where everybody's going to tell me I'm a bad person. I'll just go work at Microsoft and everybody can tell me how wonderful I am. And there's so much in both these books we could go on forever. Unintended consequences and the upside of inequality. And then you actually just recently published a chapter in this Oxford textbook. Could you just tell us a bit, a bit about that? It's called the... Uh, Economics of Inequality and High-Wage Economies. It's got some pretty famous economists who've written some of the chapters in it. I'm trying to come up with prescriptions for how do you make the world better for the middle and lower class if that's the dynamic that we face. One of the arguments I make is that we should go out and recruit a lot more of the highest skilled workers in the rest of the world and bring them here. And that will put upward pressure on the wages of our low-skilled workers. It will also on the margin, bring more supervision and entrepreneurialism towards the low-skilled worker. At the same time, I would be trying to create a relative shortage on low skill. I do think that what we have done over the last 30, 40 years has given us you know, Donald Trump on the right and AOC on the left, neither one of which I think really has uh, it was taking advantage of people's lack of understanding, I think, of how the economy works. I think both sides scare me. I don't like it. I'd like to see us working as a team. And I I think some compromises to growth have to be made, like creating a shortage of low-skilled workers, which will drive up their wages and focus more of our attention on their productivity and their success. You know, I could go off on on retooling schools at the high end. I'd certainly be telling people that they have a moral responsibility to serve their fellow man. You, You largely serve your fellow man as a customer. Some other people are doing it in other ways, philanthropy or in the government. But for the most part, 
most of us wake up every day and serve our fellow man as customers. I'd be trying to inculcate that into our most talented people. But I think it's we're scaring a lot of people that could be using mathematics a lot more effectively. We're scaring them away from mathematics before they ever get started. Because we still think we're in the 1950s chasing the Russians and trying to shoot down their missiles with, you know, their satellites with missiles and everybody needs calculus. They don't need calculus. They need trigonometry. You don't need either. <laughs> right. You need a conceptual overview of statistics and uh -huh. scenarios and don't be so certain about your point of view and think about the X factor and decision trees. And th this is the kind of conceptual understanding of the world that I think we don't give. Yeah are most talented people, but I could go on forever. Yeah, I agree on that. And quantitative literacy is something that is seriously deficient, even among intelligent people. Because if you don't excel at calculus, you're going to run away from math. Yeah. That's worth saying. Like, if you can't be great at calculus, and if you are, then you get a PhD, you become an engineer. Everybody else says, I better get out of every math class because the standard is I got to be a rock star at calculus. Well, we, we don't waste our time with calculus at B school, so. <laughs> Ed, <laughs> <laughs> Rightly so. That's right. Well, Ed, uh, thank you so much for joining me. We'll put a link to that new book as well as to these old books. Appreciate you joining me and talk again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.